0: Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show.
1: Okay, welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. Uh, this is going to be sort of a bonus episode. We've Got a special guest that a lot of you folks might not be familiar with. It's a, a new friend of mine. We were just talking here offline before we started recording. Uh, it's Dr. Arthur Plessa. He's a knee chest doc in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I got connected with Dr. Plessa because I came across his podcast, uh, the Green Book Commentaries, and so really excited to have him on the on the show today. We're going to talk about. Who he is, where he's from, what he's up to. Uh, and I'd love to introduce uh, our community to Dr. Pless's work here with the Green Book Commentaries, because I think you all find it very valuable. Uh, really, really cool project that he's got going on. So, Doc, thanks for making the time with us this morning. Uh, and I'd love for you to, before we start to get into some of the content there, introduce yourself to our Blair Technique family and uh, uh, how you got into chiropractic, maybe your journey into upper cervical care, and we'll go from there.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. First off, uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on the Blair Podcast. Um, For those who don't know me, my name is Dr. Arthur Plessa. I am a 2008 Life University alumni. Um, How I got originally involved in the chiropractic was through my father. Uh, He was actually a chiropractic patient for a number of years. Uh, Back in his late 20s, he had taken a back injury and had suffered a severe low back disc problem that had caused him crippling sciatica, on and off for about 20 plus years till he finally discovered chiropractic. Um, he had discovered a chiropractor, of course, and I went with a few visits with him just to kind of see what it was all about. Cause I was just interested. And the chiropractor was the type of doctor that didn't really say much. He just kind of brought the patient in, get them checked up, adjusted and people would walk out and do it better. And I was just left as, you know, a 12, 13 year old boy, how the heck did that happen? Well, How did my dad come in here almost in a wheelchair? gets adjusted and walks out walking like he's almost fine and gets back to work. And he's an electrician does a lot of manual labor. Yeah. Um, So after I saw my father's recovery through uh, severe sciatica, which even saved him from low back surgery, it not only impressed me a lot, but it inspired me to want to do that. So um, I had went to an orientation at life university back in 2001, um, fell in love with what I heard and really just got turned on to uh, the message that they were talking about Mm. Uh, being the only profession that can actually help people get well, stay well, and naturally. I mean, to me, it was just awesome. I had always been interested into science, healthcare, but didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. So this orientation really just spoke right to my heart. So I had enrolled as a student, uh, went through the program, and just really fell in love with the profession. Um, what got me into upper cervical, though, was um, literally within my first year of school, we had two adjusting technique courses, full spine diversified and side posture toggle. Um, inside posture toggle was, of course, our first introduction to upper cervical. I had an awesome professor. Uh, his name was Dr. Richard Franz.
1: Dr. Franz, yeah. I was
2: in his okay, last so, I was
1: in his last toggle course that he taught. Oh my
2: goodness. Okay. So you, you know who I'm talking about. Awesome man. guy, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really knew his background until towards the end of my education when I actually spent more time with him in his office. But apparently he was a Kale Knee Chest upper cervical doctor, had done a lot of uh, work with Dr. Kale, a lot of research with him. I mean, the guy was a wealth of knowledge that I got a lot of my initial knee chest upbringing with, so to speak, before I got involved with uh, KCUCS. So my first introduction to upper cervical was actually that course and reading volume 18. Um, Mm -hmm. That was actually my first chiropractic book I had ever laid hands on, even knew what it was about. And I remember just reading that book through the going through class and just fell in love with it. Um, I'm always a man of science. I loved the science classes going through school. So when I started re reading volume 18, it was really the science of chiropractic condensed into about 800 pages. <laughs> it was amazing to me to read this stuff. And of course, to read that, you know, we're actually getting sick people well. It's something that you, they kind of briefly talked about at school when I was there, but it's, you know, pretty much where you were there, like I was there to take your exams and get through your boards. You didn't really talk a lot of hardcore chiropractic outside of your technique clubs, right. your philosophy clubs and your things outside of class, which was odd to me. So I discovered chiropractic really in one class. And then a lot of alone time I spent reading the books and discovering the green books that we had over there in, uh, at the Palmer room in our library. If you mm-hmm. remember that little broom closet room. yeah, We had probably about half of them over there that I spent reading through the entire time, my uh, career at Life University. And uh, I mean, they all just really led me to one thing, the upper cervical spine, even the old full spine books, you know, before the yep. upper cervical got in- instituted into Palmer they were pushing a lot towards the upper neck, atlas axis, cord pressure, cord tension. They just hadn't developed it yet. Yeah. So when you read all those books, uh, you know, prior to volume 18 in retrospect, you can see where they're going to, you can see what they're pointing to and how the science all points to that area. So um, upper cervical really attracted me a lot due to the fact that this is where the science of our profession had really developed from all chiropractic techniques for the most part add some aspect of science to our profession and something to add to it but i believe what gave us our strong foundation that we actually have something to build off of was the work that was developed by bj palmer through his research years through of course which every upper cervical technique was based off of from knee chest to side posture adjusting into the techniques that we have today
1: yeah 100 percent. and i think uh and think it back, I didn't even learn about that special collections room until I'd almost graduated. So spent the last couple of quarters digging through there and, you know, on the top shelf up there, they actually have files from the BJ Palmer Research Clinic where you can yeah. thumb through the scans and, and look at the spinographs and oh, yeah. kind of see the records and things like that. It's just some living history hidden right there in the library that most folks never even realize is, is right there. So, um, I, you know, I, I remember back to being in school, it was, uh, I'd started the quarter after Uh, Dr. Sid Williams had passed away and Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about chiropractic and I got there and, and, you know, it was this whole, this whole thing about Dr. Williams and and the legacy of, of chiropractic and all these things. And it totally caught me off guard Uh, and then getting into your first technique class you know toggle recall with dr franz and and him explaining some of the lineage of the technique and having your your first exposure to analysis and correction uh and and being exposed to the green books and the science that was being developed concurrently with the philosophy and the art it's just such a fascinating uh journey that a lot of us have you know with a similar sort of trajectory um especially in uh Especially in the, I guess, if you want to call the vitalistic uh, schools where we Mm -hmm. are fortunate enough to have had access to that early on uh, and the support to continue to pursue that, you know, later on. Um, So besides Dr. Franz, uh, who are your mentors in chiropractic now that you got out of school? What were the next steps for you?
2: Well, I've got to give respect to one more um, clinician back when I was at Life University that really put me on a good track. Um, He's actually a Blair chiropractor. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Dr. Ralph Davis. Oh,
1: yeah. He
2: was my uh, student clinician, uh, kind of the head of the student clinic back when I was in student clinic over there. And, uh, you know, back then we weren't doing knee chest, uh, all I had available was either diversified or full sp- or uh, toggle that you could do in student clinics. So right. I was doing toggle at the time and he was a Blair guy. He was trying to get me into Blair said, you know, they're very similar techniques. It just one's a little bit more detailed than the other. So I was really getting interested into Blair at that time, but it, his conversations with me were not really so much more technique orientated mm. as they were focusing on the opposite end of a practice, which is the practice management side, kind of okay. the business aspect. I remember one of the most important things I learned from him was he told me no matter how good you get at adjusting an atlas subluxation and clearing that line. If you don't know how to communicate the value of what you do to your patient for mm-hmm. lifetime care and maintenance, um, you're going to be adjusting nobody. You're going to be the best chiropractor in an empty clinic. Wow. And I didn't understand that con- concept then because I was your typical student thinking all I had to do was be the best adjuster. Hang my sign out the door and all of a sudden, all of the city is going to flood into Dr. Plus's office. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely a lot of respect to that chiropractor because he put me on the track of actually exploring the options of practice management. That is something you critically need in today's uh, chiropractic world. So after school, i kind of going moving on beyond that. Uh, my two biggest mentors were within my own technique of KCUCS. First and foremost was Dr. Robert Kessinger, the founder of the technique. Um, he's literally where I learned adjusting from. I've done a knee chest adjusting mission trips with them, you know, adjusted side by side with them. He's just a good, awesome, sincere doctor who wants to see other chiropractors and other students do well in this profession. I think he's like a third generation guy coming down the line. His great I think his grandfather, great grandfather, were trained by B.J. Palmer. So he's got a pretty cool lineage. Yeah. Uh, my second uh, big mentor is uh, another KCUCS doctor, uh, an uh, instructor as well, Dr. Henri Dalias actually worked as an associate doctor for him. He practices in Hendersonville, North Carolina. So just about two hours west of us here. And um, while I got a lot of my knee chest technique fine-tuned with him over the years of working with him, what really took my practice off was uh, learning, again, the practice management aspect. And not just practice management, but specific for an upper cervical practice. Right. So to have the pleasure and the uh, the ability to work in a high volume office like his, you know, see a lot of patients, uh, and just create a good value for what we do on upper cervical and then specifically our technique. So yeah, Dr. Kessinger, and Dr. Dalias are definitely two of my biggest influencers and biggest, um, role models that I look up to even today.
1: Yeah. Dr. Kessinger is a close friend of the Blair community. He's, uh, you know, definitely, I, I believe I was uh, telling you beforehand, he's going to be on the uh, speaker rotation at this year's uh, annual Blair conference. So yeah, we're excited I to have him, uh, love when, you know, every time these guys come around and really, uh, Help us up our game in the thermography aspect of the Blair work. Uh, it's mm-hmm. one thing that I think we can do a better job of, just as a technique organization, is getting everyone on the same page re- regarding the thermography uh, yes. aspect of our assessment. Um, and it's it's such an invaluable tool. I think if we can demystify, you know, some of the, uh, the common errors that folks make and not having the proper oh. pattern in the first place, and then what to do with it subsequently. Um, exactly. So, really excited what he's going to share. Uh, you guys have, you know, dialed that in very, very uh, nicely. And so we appreciate the work that you've done there. Now, talk to me about this Green Book Commentaries podcast. And how did this all come about? uh, And walk us through the thought process with, I want to read volume 8, volume 25 out loud in a series of podcasts.
2: (laughs) Um, So the Green Book Commentaries, I began this uh, last year, I think it was the summer, June or July of 2020. Um, It was just a few short months after COVID hit Um, in Charlotte over here. The lock. It it wasn't hardcore lockdown, but everybody was terrified. Sure. You know, a lot of patients um, were calling to reschedule. We had a lot of open availabilities in our clinic and I was literally just sitting around like, what the heck's going on? (laughs) So I had a little bit of available time on my hands and, uh, you know, just went back to reading a few of my green books that kind of keep my energy, keep my momentum going, even though the practice had slowed down. And uh, N.A. gave me the idea, well, you're probably not the only one affected by COVID, are you? There, You're one of numerous chiropractors and newly graduated people sitting around right now trying to decide what's going to happen with your practice and where you're going to go. So it came to me that let's put, the, put this together in a podcast format um, to let other people become exposed to it. Because I find a lot of students I uh, speak to, even chiropractors that have been in the profession for a number of years, really depending on where they graduated from, if they've even heard of a green book. Uh, I know some chiropractors that have graduated, say, from Western states. I don't even think that's introduced to them. Yeah. The Green Book, is it, it's it's an alien idea to these people. So being able to introduce them to um, some of the greatest work written in our profession by definitely one of the greatest chiropractors, if not the greatest one, the developer of a chiropractic, uh, for me was just, it, it's an honor and a pleasure to be able to do so. Um, I've always loved the Green Books, going back to myself as a student, and was just trying to struggle to find time to read that much green books during studies, boards, exams, and all that stuff. So I took the challenge that I had and tried to create a solution for the next generation and that nobody's ever done a podcast for this. Nobody's ever read the green books out um, in this format before and provided a commentary so that people that are new to it or have no idea of the profession during that time in history can kind of have a, a sense of concept of what's going on. What are they actually reading? um one funny thing was i actually had no idea you may be familiar dr joseph strauss apparently he did a a book version of this of all the green books back in his day called the green book commentaries yes he does. i had no idea about when i first tried to come up with an idea for the podcast you know i googled the names and nothing came up for the green book commentary podcast so i'm like great i've got an awesome title about a month or two later a friend of mine sends me a copy of dr strauss's book the green book commentaries he's got Um, volumes of them they're blue yeah 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 the blue books i'm just like you know, face, palm the head. I'm like, oh Lord. Uh, I hope Dr. Strauss doesn't get offended, but either way.
1: Yeah. You know, I think, uh, it's interesting observing that, that same phenomenon where a lot of people have opinions about Dr. Palmer and have never read any of his work. Yeah. Um, and I've always found that to be very, you know, very, uh, ironic. It's like a lot of the conversations going on today in the upper cervical community about things like, the cerebral spinal hydrodynamics and internal jugular vein compression. And some of these, these advanced concepts are not brand new concepts. These are not things that, that he was not considering and thinking about and uh, talking about at the time. And uh, we've got updated technology, you know, so we can start to approach these things uh, a little bit differently from a scientific point of view, but the concepts are well-established and have been uh, been around for a very long time. So let's introduce folks, um, I hate that we have to do this, but let's just introduce folks to what Volume Twenty Five is. So, in the green books,
2: you've got oh, you've got yours right Forty there. volumes for there. Right.
1: I've got my copy of, of Volume Twenty Five here. It's a good read. I've got it all. I can tell you have a few of your highlights
2: in there. So you chiropractic clinical
1: controlled point. research. Okay, so could you walk us through? Uh, and this is 1951, correct? Yes. Walk us through what this book is all about. Why did Dr. Palmer put this together?
2: Okay. Um, Volume 25, Chiropractic Clinical Control Research, was published in 1951, as you've just mentioned. Um, Out of the nearly 40 Green Book volumes written, if I could single out one and for some reason say all the other ones did not exist, but just keep one, I would keep volume uh, 25. Now, why is that so? Because everything written prior to 1951, prior to volume 25, was included into that book. Hmm. Anything after 51, you had very little, um, um, development of chiropractic technique after 51. The only other thing that was produced by the Palmer school was, uh, the Thompson head piece right after 1951, it was basically just more expanding upon the philosophy and the, you know, the volumes got a little bit smaller, <laughs> uh, the thoughts got a little bit more concise. It's almost like BJ Palmer hit his magnum opus with volume 25, huh. um, Every upper cervical person will usually point to volume 18 as their bread and butter. And I like that one. But the problem with it is it's only a starting point. It's the first one in the volume that builds up from that point. And it's before pattern analysis even got developed. Right. They were just doing typical break analysis of the upper cervical area, no pattern. It's just if it broke more than two points, you adjust it. It was a great start and a night and day difference from the general full spine adjusting they were doing in the 1920s. Sure. What developed after the 1930s going to the 1940s is what we see with volume 25. Volume 25 is literally anything chiropractic you can think about from day one to 1951. B.J. takes the reader from 1895. um, You know, there were only three people there, him, his father and Harvey Lillard. And he details what happened. Now, there's a little discrepancy from him to DD, but again, he tells us the story of what happened, Uh, and then how chiropractic developed within the first 10 years from, you know, the the, the crude adjustments they were doing. A lot of people don't know, but we used to put 100-pound sandbags on our shoulders to adjust patients with, (laughs) thinking back in those olden days, it was just brute force to get the bone to move. Um, You know, then we see the advancement of different um, uh, analysis going from palpation to the Merrick system, then the force scientific objective tool which we had was x-ray 1910 and then following with the neurokilometer so on and so forth volume 25 is really the history of the development of chiropractic so anybody who really wants to understand the profession where we came from uh, where we are and really where we're headed you can look at that volume and literally see the whole profession and even where it's going 60 years ago when that book was written now um volume 25 is just fantastic it, it breaks into so many sub chapters you can say um one of my favorite ones that i really just got turned on to again this year was uh reading dr krau's medical research work george washington krau in there the bipolar theory of life uh-huh. the first few times i read volume 25 i would kind of skip over that or just breeze through <laughs> it. yeah yeah you know very good medical research is just supporting his theory for the for you know nerve pressure causing the heat right uh, but going back to that now um it's interesting to find out that it's actually the nerves that produce the heat. Uh, chiropractors were the first to say this, that nerves heated the body, whereas the medical profession claimed it was the blood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was Dr. Crowell's work, a medical doctor and researcher back in the twenties who did research on rabbits, putting electrodes on their vascular system here, measuring blood temperature before and after it would leave the brain and actually found that the blood going into the brain was cooler than the blood going out of the brain. So the brain being the master generator of electrical heat, electrical energy, should naturally heat up that blood. So, when it comes out and you measure it in the venous system, it'll be hotter. So, the idea was that, yes, nerves do produce heat. Subluxation does produce a nerve pressure heat. Um, So, that's one thing I really loved about reading that again because it backs up what BJ was saying that a lot of people now are saying it's just the blood again. It's heated blood, heated capillaries. Well, there's some value to that. The underlying cause will always go back to the nervous system, I believe.
1: Very cool. Yeah. So, you you set out to Basically, share this volume. You, you've obviously derived so much value from it in within your community. Uh, likewise, so uh, why podcast format? What, what was it that drew you to uh, you know just sitting down in bite sized chunks, reading this thing out loud?
2: It just seemed like the most logical and the most efficient way of doing it. Um, when I tried to come up with different formats, you know, maybe like write it and post it on a website. My whole goal was I wanted people to be able to listen to this, even if they're on the run, if they're doing long distance drives. And as a student, I mean, I'm sure like most are, I did a lot of seminars as a student. So I was doing hours of driving literally every month from technique uh, to practice management, anything I could find my hands that I would find value in developing my practice, I did. So I just wanted students, doctors who, you know, like me, do a lot of driving, do a lot of seminars to have something valuable to listen to, to stay on fire for our profession. So I found that a podcast, you know, in the form of a of an audible was the best method to reach the audience, uh, have them become engaged and interact them so that they actually understand what they're what they're listening to.
1: Yeah, it's so easily accessible. I mean, with that technology, you know, you think back to Dr. Palmer and the printing press and the world of chiropractic radio station, all the different mm-hmm. media formats that he was involved with. I mean, there would have been numerable podcasts coming out of, of davenport iowa with, i can only with, imagine nowadays yeah so it makes sense that we leverage that technology to meet folks where they're at in a way that's really accessible so if you go on spotify apple podcast i wherever you get your uh your podcast search the green book commentaries uh you'll find it uh right away go ahead and subscribe to that each episode is probably we aim for like 30 minutes uh between 30 minutes or less um each individual subchapter, just a, a little snippet. So you're not gonna have to sit and listen through eight hours, you know, solid of nonstop. They're they're nice bite-sized chunks so that in your commute, even to work and back and forth, you can get a little something and it'll get you thinking. Um, and uh you can even listen to them on a you know a little bit faster speed if you have to, because Dr. Plessed does a great job of going very articulately through uh through the different uh, articles and chapters. So definitely check that out. I think we could all uh we could all benefit from. Uh, that endeavor. What, what are you hoping that uh, folks will take away from your podcast? If, if you were to have your way and looking back on this project when it's completed, you know what would make you feel really good about the way that it turned out?
2: There's two things I really uh, take a lot of value from in the green books. Um, first off is the science. This is where the science of our profession really developed its foundation. Everything that you and I do today is because of what they were doing back then. So anytime I hear you know somebody new in the profession or students say that oh there's not a lot of science behind what we do, well maybe nobody's producing a lot of good science now, but let's look back in your grandparents' generation. I guarantee you what they were doing then was groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, so one thing I really want people to take away from first off is the scientific aspect of chiropractic. Chiropractic is a solid science that gets sick people well. You just have to know how to find the subluxation and be skilled enough at adjusting it, and then be smart enough to know when to stop. Uh, Second, I love the philosophy of chiropractic. Um, The philosophy of chiropractic just resonates with me personally as who I am in my spiritual life. And it really just connects the spirit to the body. And I find that understanding chiropractic philosophy is really what keeps us as chiropractors long term, uh, keeps the fire going, keeps the fire alive. Because without chiropractic philosophy, um, we're really nothing more than technicians. We're just moving bones around from point A to point B hearing the pops hearing the cracks and getting a high five when the patient says they feel better it's 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 you know it's rewarding but it's shallow to me in the end yeah uh, the chiropractic philosophy is really where the depth of our profession comes from and can stem um, amazingly from that point we are the only profession that acknowledges there's a life force within mankind the only yeah. Right. I love what B.J. Palmer used to say medical do- medical doctors deny the bo- deny the spirit uh, six days of the week and then reaffirm it on Sunday. You know, when yeah. go to church. <laughs> so that's what I love about the philosophy of chiropractic. It really allows me to unite what I believe um, uh, in my spiritual life to what we are physically. And that there is a spirit, there is a soul, there is a life energy within us that works through the brain, through the nervous system. And a subluxation is the one major thing that stops it from being able to do so. So when we adjust our patients, this is what gets me up in the morning and keeps me excited to that last patient at six o'clock at night. At each person I get to adjust, we get to help reconnect their innate intelligence to their body, get to help them be well, and whatever they want to do in life at that point, they're not inhibited. They're not interfered with because of subluxation. Beautiful.
1: Yeah. And, And Is this something that you're talking about with patients? How are you introducing them to chiropractic principles and thoughts?
2: It's a process, you know, as you know, in, in practice, it takes time, right? You're not going to get it in one visit. Um, this is why you have to have a good practice management system to help build your patients over the course of, you know, of visits, not just three or four visits. I mean, just think about when we were in school. Did you really learn everything about chiropractic in one year? You're so true. You know, That's one year, so true. I learned how to take some tests. I learned what some basic anatomy and physiology was. And I think I understood what a subluxation might have been, <laughs> <laughs> So the way with our patients, um, think of it like uh, the minute hand turning on an hourly clock, right? When it starts at 12 o'clock, goes to three, down to six, around to nine, then back up to 12. Our goal is not to shock on the approach, go from what they think chiropractic is to a complete 180 in one visit. Most people can't connect with that. I wouldn't have been able to connect with that. So it's a slow process of meeting them where they're at, get them to understand that there's a cause behind their problem, which is the subluxation what causes that subluxation? What are the effects of that subluxation beyond just the physical aspect? Mm. Um, so, you know, we t- we'll touch a lot of mental and emotional problems that can connect with subluxation. And that right there just removes the person from the physical aspect and gets them thinking, hey, there's something else going on over here. And, you know, we'll introduce the term innate intelligence to them. They get comfortable with it. They know about it. And, you know, most people acknowledge there's something like this. We call it innate intelligence. Every culture has its name for it. There's sure. very few cultures of people that say, nope, there's nothing within us. We're just meat and bones, and then we die. Well, you know what, if you have that innate inco- innate intelligence conversation with that meat and bones person, you're going to still come out of better than they will because you believe more than they do, and your results speak for themselves. So yeah, it's just a, it's a day-by-day, visit-by-visit process of just ingraining our patients into what chiropractic is, what it does, what it doesn't, and tie that all back to innate intelligence just to keep them excited about their care that, listen, this is more than just what I came in for. And the great thing about Dr. Palmer's work
1: and, and like you said blending the science and the art and the philosophy cons- concurrently as that developed I think that's one of the one of the most uh underrated aspects of the development of chiropractic everywhere in the business world and in you know the entrepreneurial space the conversation is start with why develop a vision you know what's the culture of your business and all these types of conversations mm-hmm. that have all of a sudden you know, reflected the need for a philosophy of what you're doing and why you're doing it to anchor you to a, a true North. And, uh, we have that, you know, that was built in. Yes, and I, I always thought it was kind of funny that, uh, that there has been almost, you know, a, a diversion away from, uh, f- from the philosophy that, that we were, uh, sort of grounded in foundationally. And, uh, we talk about this with some of the old school Blair docs, the ones that have been trained by first generation, you know, Dr. Blair and his contemporaries. Mm. And, uh, There was just an understanding that they had about these principles that they might not have had to have these conversations in the way that we do now, uh, because it was so ingrained within every bit of, you know, what they knew to be chiropractic, right? There wasn't, uh, there wasn't, I guess there were always straights and mixers, but they all had a, a, an awareness of Dr. Palmer's work, the philosophy of chiropractic, and they had legendary, you know, philosophical chiropractors training them yes uh, not having you know md's or phd's training them in biochemistry having chiropractors exactly. training biochemistry that explains you know and and weaves that into the conversation about body performance body function and how things work uh so i really uh i really admire the you know we always talk about how rock solid those folks were and we always want to emulate their results and mm-hmm. we always want to work towards uh you know their results but as you were just saying previously if we just simply follow the steps without the conviction behind it, then you're, you're a technician and the results will not be, you know, at that same level. So glad that you made that distinction. I hope that folks that are maybe a little bit, for lack of a better word, uncomfortable with philosophy, maybe they come to upper cervical care for different reasons, um, and have, you know, maybe stayed away from the philosophical constructs or some of the philosophical Mm -hmm. topics, or maybe they have heard, uh, you know, chiropractors outside the upper cervical community may be using and abusing chiropractic philosophy in a way that is uh, maybe inappropriate and doesn't sure. resonate with their values. I would encourage you to reapproach that. And I think volume 25 is a perfect way to do that because it's going to scratch the itch that you have for the science and the case management and uh, some of the different aspects of what makes us love upper cervical work. We were talking just before we started recording there about Colonel Allen's story. Uh, for folks that, that have not read 25, could you, could you briefly summarize who is Colonel Allen and, and what that's all about? Because I, I would really love for folks to, if nothing else, pick this up and start there uh, so that you can get a taste of what, what it's all about.
2: Absolutely. i love to. Um, the funny thing is, that's actually the first story I read in volume 25. Um, you know, going back to my days at Life University at the, the Palmer room, the broom closet room, I called it. When I discovered volume 25, I just kind of, you know, thumbed through it to see if there were any cool pictures to check out, anything like that. And the few pictures were of patients in there, his patient cases. Um, so, Doc, um, pardon me, uh, Colonel Allen was a patient of B.J. Palmer back in the early 1940s. He was actually a student of chiropractic at Palmer School uh, prior to enrolling in the military for World War II service. Uh, in World War II service, he got called or drafted uh, and served in, in Europe. Colonel Allen was doing training um, in Europe and had fallen, twisted his ankle and fell back and, and hurt himself. He had woken up the next morning with scarlet fever, which means his skin had turned red, had you know the red bumps and just had a severe fever. A few days later, he really took a downturn and had uh, developed jaundice. The medical doctors had done an exam of him, done blood work, and found out that he had an obstruction of his bil- of his uh, gallbladder duct, and as a result, was not being able to get uh, bile to come through. So they did an exploratory surgery and found out that he had a uh, cancerous tumor that was causing this problem. They uh, said that basically there was nothing medicine that could do for him, sent him back home to America to make good with his wife and family and prepare to die. Well, when he got back home, him being a chiropractor, being trained by B.J. Palmer, knew where to go. He went straight to Davenport, Iowa, and checked in there at the clinic um, and uh, basically got, got a full upper cervical workup. In a period of about six weeks, you can see there in volume 25 the actual numbers of his bilirubin. Uh, Go from like the high sevens down to within normal uh, levels. And what this all indicates uh, in blood work for medical diagnostics is that he was cancer free. His condition cleared up. Uh, He got his strength to get back, got his energy back so good that he was able to go back and serve uh, in World War II at the Battle of the Bulge, which was one of the deadliest, most bloodiest battles during World War II. Somehow survived, came back to the States, got checked up one more time about a year later after that first adjustment is one and only adjustment, might I add, and was still clear. So this is what I love about cases like this, to hear of the potential of what one adjustment can do and what one good adjustment can really do to get the stay in place for a long period of time and really how sick people get well. And yes, even patients with cancer can get well.
1: And any of our uh, friends and colleagues that have trained in the orthogonal techniques, that story sounds familiar to what they've uh, they've heard from Dr. Grostick's history uh, with upper cervical care and, and had a very similar uh, very similar experience at the BJ clinic and, and went into remission on multiple occasions uh, when he had yeah. his atlas corrected.
2: Didn't he have a, he had Hodgkin's I believe he? lymphoma. Him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had a very aggressive form. So I remember hearing Dr. Grosstick's story too, um, got adjusted by BJ and got well as well. So we have an amazing technique in upper cervical and I think they all do awesome work. Um, our goal is to see if we can clear that subluxation and clear that pattern scan. We find that that's the one objective tool. If we can get that cleared, everything else begins to clear very well over time and sick people get very well, even of cancer.
1: Excellent. Uh, let's talk about thermography. Now. I know this was this is a little bit off script for what we planned on. No, talking that's okay. about, uh, but I'd love to, uh, from your point of view, uh, if you were to talk to some of our Blair family, that's maybe not as uh, proficient or comfortable with the use of thermography, mm-hmm. uh, why you find that to be such an important, uh, diagnostic tool, uh, for the clinical practice of chiropractic. And, uh, if you were to explain, um, You know, I guess in layman's terms, if you were describing to a patient, what are we doing with this scan here? What does this mean when we're getting adjustment, when I'm out of adjustment versus Mm -hmm. not? uh, And and some of how that integrates within your your patient communication.
2: Sure. Uh, So let's break that up into two portions. First, we'll talk about... The the significance of thermography, especially to the chiropractic community, especially those that have either used a little bit of it or are not familiar one bit whatsoever with it. And then I'll answer the question on um, how to discuss it with patients. Excellent. Now, in regards towards our profession, um, spinal thermography is the science of measuring subluxation nerve heat. Anytime you have a subluxation, there's pressure on the spinal cord or spinal nerves that produces a resistance to the transmission of electrical energy from the brain down through the body. Just like an electrical short in an electrical panel that you have in your house, wherever that point of resistance is produces more heat. Heat is given off at that point of interference, and you can actually measure this in an electrical circuit using an electric meter. Now in the human body, we don't put an electric meter to it. What we have is we can measure the heat emission given off by the nervous system through the skin. Uh, We have spinal thermography tools. The one I use in my office is from the company TITRON. There's a few other different ones, but that is definitely my preferred one and the preferred one for most upper cervical practices. It uses infrared thermography to take a temperature scan of the back of a patient's spine. You can do full spine scans. Typically, you'll just do cervical scans for visit-to-visit basis. And anytime you have a subluxation, it produces a constant heat pattern. Think of it like when you have hypertension. You go into the cardiologist, you get a blood pressure check, and that number stays high consistently. Not once, not twice, but consistently. You know, if it raises once or twice, maybe you ran up the stairs to get you to your doctor's visit, right? Or you had a stressful day. Your blood pressure will raise with that. We're not concerned with the variance. We're concerned with the constant nature of subluxation. And anytime you've got a subluxation, research shows you scan somebody with that scan, it forms a very similar heat pattern each and every time with very little variation. The character looks the same, just the intensity may change. So this is really the only scientific objective tool we have in our profession to measure subluxation. Now, the next step is leg check. Um, You know, I came from side posture toggle adjusting before I got into knee chest and I was doing titron and leg checks then, but I didn't know titron too much then. So I was doing more value in the leg check. We got a lot of good results with that. And I was just a student clinician, you know, legs were balancing, people were getting well, and there's a lot of value to that. Um, but what B.J. Palmer found in his research was that the most sensitive and the most specific test we have is that scan. So that when a subluxation occurs, a patient can have that pattern present itself, but the legs just haven't become unbalanced yet. So what we've what B.J. reasoned from that was that there's a time period that occurs between when a subluxation happens in the upper neck and that writing reflex will occur to actually draw a significant leg short. Um, so, uh, he found times that they matched up together and sometimes that they didn't. So the value was always put on the scan first over the leg check. Um, again, keep in mind, BJ was trying to go towards more scientific, more objective tools, um, instrumentation, in other words, sure. not that there wasn't value in leg checks. It's just that they weren't, they weren't, they weren't uh, objectified like a, like a scan could be. Um, you could play with the leg checks if you wanted, you know, You can pull one leg a little bit more, be a little dishonest. That scan, you can't lie with that thing. It's like hooking somebody up to an EKG, you know? So that scan is really the most sensitive, the most specific test we have in our profession. And it is not technique specific. That's the cool thing. I love about thermography. However, with that said, it will lead you to certain techniques uh, when done properly, because that's really how BJ got to where he did. Yeah. You know, before upper cervical, BJ was doing full spine. The majority of full spine techniques that people do today, from Gonstead to Thompson to Diversified, were originally developed by BJ. And he tested all those techniques against that neurokilometer, that spinal thermography scan. The ones that would show reduction of of nerve pressure heat were considered a value. The ones that showed no change, it would just get the bones to move, pop, and crack. He said, you know, these are just manipulative moves. We don't need to worry about these anymore. So he got to refining chiropractic technique. This is how really how he got to the upper cervical through this technique, through this uh, spinal thermography. So we'll always find that it's going to be one of the specific upper cervical techniques that will always consistently uh, get that scan to clear and hold long. Um, you know, back when I was in school, I messed around just to see if I could. And I did like a, a, a supine rotary break at Atlas. For one of my one of my patients just to play with it. And I scanned him and it cleared. I said, Oh, my God, BJ was wrong. <laughs> you know, the patient came in two days later, scan again, and they were in pattern.
1: Yeah, there you <laughs> so go. Know he
2: wasn't wrong. Some can get it to change. Some can't even get it to clear. But the holding power, that's really the the end result. Yeah. Which one can get it to hold the longest to get that innate intelligence to heal the body through a non-subluxated body faster?
1: I'm glad you said that because uh, I always joke with uh, a few of my friends that any, any chiropractor can balance legs. Everybody's doing that. But there aren't that many that are clearing the scans, right? Bingo. And and so uh, the proof is in the pudding. And I think that's what makes some folks a little bit uh, nervous to approach it. Uh, But on that same topic, I had a patient just this week that I saw who came for her initial workup back in January, had an orthopedic issue that had to be taken care of, came back, her subsequent scan, dead ringer three months later of her original pattern had not been adjusted. And, uh, it it just made me stop and think that, you know, you hear people say this, that pattern is a pattern is pattern and then it will reemerge. And, you know, it makes you think of how static her physiology has been for the last three months, uh, without having that, uh, that adjustment and and being able to measure a change then, uh, post adjustment and see that, you know, even that soon we've, we've made a positive adaptive change in her neurophysiology and cleared that out. It's like, always makes you, uh, you know, appreciate that much more the, the, the utility that we have in this in this tiny instrument that only takes two seconds to to use. So yeah. now back to the patient side of things, when when folks are coming in and you're scanning this thing on the back of their neck and you're looking at it and you're comparing it uh, and they're wondering, what is this show, what is going on? What am I supposed to think about this? You know, how mm-hmm. do you talk to folks about what you're doing there?
2: Sure. Um, so when it comes to patient education, uh, again, the, your first few visits with the patient, it's about keeping it short, sweet, and simple. You wanna get straight to the point connect the subluxation to their area of complaint, right? You can't just say, I've got a subluxation, it's bad for your body, your innate intelligence is disconnected, but it has nothing to do with your condition. They'll (laughs) say, thanks doc, that sounds great, I'll see you next time. (laughs) So first and foremost, when we do that scan of the spine, regardless of where their problem is, right there, the test indicates you have a subluxation that's causing nerve pressure leading to your condition. Now this scan right here picks up the heat given off by those hot nerves. Anytime there's pressure on those nerves because the bones are out of place, the nerve gets hot and it's going to form a very consistent heat pattern. So when I scan you with this in future visits, this lets us know, actually, if the adjustment from last time stayed in place and you're getting better or if it went back out of alignment for whatever reason, your body's getting worse and another adjustment is clinically necessary at that point. So that's kind of the key term we'll use as clinical necessity rather than just, oh, I feel like you need to be adjusted. I think you need to be adjusted. Yeah. The test indicates it, right? I'm removing myself from that human subjective equation. I'm literally nothing more than a technician who pulled a button and heard two beeps, <laughs> scanned to the base of the occiput, and then here's what it says. So it's not me telling her that. It's a test telling her that. Like It's just like an MRI saying you got a, a squeezed disc at C5 hitting your C5 nerve root. Well, it's no longer the doctor thinking that that shoulder pain going down to your arm is a ridiculous pain, right? It's the doctor knowing now because the test indicates it. So it raises your level of value um, to the patient and your level of clinical confidence when you present yourself to have this test right there. We live in a digital computerized age, you know, and to think that we have this technology in our practice and chiropractors (laughs) aren't using it just because, well, my technique doesn't call for it. It's ludicrous to me. Patients need to see stuff like this. And if we have it, which we do use it, patients love being able to know that there's something wrong when they come in, that there is a reason for their problem. Because how many patients have you had yourself that have been to emergency rooms, medical doctors, physical therapists, even other chiropractors, and they said, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh They come to your office, you check them in, you've got an upper cervical subluxation. It's not me saying that, it's your test indicating it. So it, it's just keeping it short, so simple and pointing out their their condition is caused by that subluxation and they're going to start seeing in subsequent visits with each scan. Yep. My pattern's back. Oh, doc looks like my head's not on straight. Got to get adjusted. Or, yeah, go. I got a clear reading today. Everything's great. Wonderful. We'll see you next time.
1: Great. Yeah. It's a, and shout out to Roger and, and Dr. Hoskins and the crew at Titronics. They do a great job of supporting, you know, all the chiropractic communities that are involved. And, uh, I, I really appreciate, uh, their customer support, you know, the technology that they have available to us. It's, uh, it really is uh, a no brainer in my opinion. And it's so funny. I don't know if you've had this. Sometimes patients will say things like, I guess maybe because I'm younger, you know, this must be the newest, you know, most advanced thing in chiropractic. I can't, you know, all this different stuff. And, and, you know, we always have this conversation. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause this is one of the <laughs> only things that's been around almost 100 years and has stood the test of time with all the different things that have come and gone and was, you know, potentially developed to be the gold standard of chiropractic care. Uh, And it's, uh, you know, an interesting observation on the part of patients, you know, like you mentioned earlier, when they have an opinion about or, you know, a perspective about what chiropractic is, Mm -hmm. and then they approach something a little bit differently and the use of technology and diagnostic equipment to be able to, uh, you know, monitor progress over time and keep the chiropractor uh, accountable to their results. Exactly. So excellent. Um, and yeah, I and think for, patients
2: really get a value for that. And you'll see that with the patients that stick around with you, Don't especially the ones that come from the general full spine world or other techniques that don't use any instrumentation. It's just find the high bump and mash it type of technique, you know, yeah, they really get a value for that, that, that you use this instrument.
1: And for those of you that are watching on YouTube or, or uh, the video portion of this is available. This is from Colonel Allen's you know, particular case, you'll see they do provide the scans and, and the scans over time. And what you'll notice is they're not all perfectly straight. And there is an explanation of what's going on over time, yeah. you know, as those changes are occurring uh, along with the patient's other testing, uh, as well as, you know, his symptomatic feedback and, and the full clinical picture of what's going on. And there are other cases in here as well. So you can, you can use that to sort of wrap your head around, you know, what this pattern uh, concept is all about, you know, what, changes are observed over time. Uh, and, uh, Dr. Palmer's thought process as this, as these cases were going through a a, a trial of care there at the BJ Palmer clinic. And there were not a lot of adjustments happening during those times. And, uh, you know, Dr. Allen's one adjustment that lasted that long had a tremendous amount of survival value attached with it. Um, Dr. Doc, as, as we start to wrap up here, really appreciate, uh, you, uh, joining our little Blair family and community here and, and sort of it's connecting uh, the two podcasts there. Uh, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think it's really interesting. It's really cool. Uh, it's a, it's super valuable. And I hope that uh, our folks will find, find that to be the case too. So I'd encourage you all that are listening to go find the Green Book Commentaries podcast, subscribe, uh, get connected with Dr. Plessa, send him some feedback, let him know what you like, Uh, what you want to hear next. I mean, volume 25 eventually is going to come to a conclusion. So what would you like to hear next uh, in the Green Book Commentaries podcast? And uh, continue to check out the Blair Technique podcast for more information regarding the philosophy, science, and art of the things that we all uh, have in common. As BJ used to sign and, and saying all these different things, you know, we love you because you love the things we love. Uh, we find a lot of common ground in, with the folks that uh, that have more in common than different. So we, we appreciate our folks in the Neachess community. Hope to connect with you all uh, sooner than later at conferences and seminars and such. But are there any other uh, last minute thoughts that you'd like to share with folks uh, regarding chiropractic philosophy? Maybe for, we, we have a lot of younger docs and students that listen. Uh, any advice or things that you'd like to share with them from uh, your years of practice, practice experience uh, just as we start to wrap up for today?
2: Absolutely. Um, two things that I always share with, with upcoming chiropractic generations is the two things that helped me the most. Um, to have a successful practice, you have to have two techniques. One is your chiropractic technique, and you have got to dedicate your life, your whole professional career to mastering it, to being the absolute best that you can be at it. You may not be the best in the world at that technique, but you need the best that you can be personally, that your body can deliver, and you're going to get fantastic results with patients. Um, This is where your your satisfaction comes from at the end of the day, knowing that you're doing your job right. This is where your reward comes at the end of your career, knowing that you lived a life well-lived helping hundreds, thousands of families get well from subluxation so they can live the life they want to live that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to live. Your chiropractic technique, you have to be good at it. And that's the only thing that's going to help you overcome that hump right there. The second thing that I recommend to everybody, even maybe before you decide your chiropractic technique is to find your uh, chiropractic management system, a practice technique system. Um, I'm not going to name any names. There's plenty out there, but you need to look Um, our chiropractic teaching institutions, our colleges are great at helping us pass our test. Um, you know, kind of get a general understanding of what chiropractic is and get us through national boards. Um, however, that's pretty much where they stop and to really build a successful practice, you have to do a lot more schooling outside of school. Um, I dedicated three years of practice management. So almost another chiropractic institution teaching time of almost four more years learning how to uh, do proper practice management. So um, that's definitely my advice for the next generation coming out. Be a master at your adjusting technique and become a master at your practice management technique. The best chiropractor, um, if you can't get practice, patients into practice, it means nothing, right? Because you got a whole subluxated world out there that you haven't been able to convince the value of chiropractic of coming in. And you're not going to get that from your adjusting technique. So definitely make sure you, have, you find a balance between your okay. chiropractic technique of adjusting and analyzing subluxation and reaching out to patients who are subluxated, how to get them into your office and then how to keep them in your office for a lifetime care. And you're going to have a healthy practice, a successful career, and you're going to get more sick people well than you could imagine.
1: Excellent. And one of my favorite quotes of Dr. Blair's was, be specific, be scientific, render only quality care to the patient, and you'll be rewarded bountifully. So I think we could end on that note. And uh, Dr. Plessa, appreciate you making the time for us, carving it out. And uh, I hope that folks find a lot of value in the work that you're doing. I know that I have, and I think that our community will love it. So thanks for uh, all your hard work and dedication and doing what I call putting points on the scoreboard for chiropractic.
2: Thank you, Dr. Stenberg. It's a pleasure and an honor. And we definitely thank you for what you're doing with your podcast. Um, I believe we're all a bunch of boats in the big ocean of chiropractic. And when one of us arrives, we all rise. So I'm definitely here to support anybody and anybody who is chiropractic subluxation based and uh, definitely look forward to connecting with you in the future.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.